Hello, everybody. Welcome to As It Stands, brought to you by The Daily Beacon and me, your host, Hanson Sale. Joining me today to discuss quite a few different things, including the coronavirus, the recently passed aid package, the economic hardship ravaging the country, and how the media is covering it all, and much more, is Jim Tankersley. Jim is a tax and economics reporter for the New York Times. He has written extensively about the stagnation of the American middle class, the decline of economic opportunity in wide swaths of the country, and how policy changes in Washington have exacerbated those trends over the past few decades. Jim is at the forefront of political and economic reporting and research, so there is hardly a better time to have him on the show. He's also the author of a forthcoming book, The Riches of This Land, the untold true story of America's middle class, scheduled to be released on August 11th, 2020. I'm excited to hear Jim's perspective, and I hope you are too. So let's get started. Hello, Jim, and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so, so much for having me. Yeah, so to get started, you have a forthcoming book coming out about inequality in America, right? I do. It's, um, it's scheduled for August, um, and hopefully that will still be the case. It is um, uh, a tumultuous time in publishing right now. But the book is called The Riches of This Land, and it's the real story of who built the American middle class and um, unfortunately timely story of uh, how we can rebuild it again from the ashes of this, you know, horrible economic crisis for it. Mm-hmm. So, so what is the narrative of that book? I mean, what's the story you're trying to tell? And I mean, I guess in light of, of coronavirus, do you think the pandemic will change that story in any way? It does. I mean, it extends the story and in, in many ways it makes it, um, more important. It's a structural story that spans decades. What I'm redoing, what I'm doing is retelling the story of the American middle class. I, I, I don't know about you, but I grew up uh, hearing a particular story about, you know, how the middle class was built after World War II. I grew up mm-hmm. in a, a timber town in um, Western Oregon. And, you know, the story that I heard was very focused on you know, white workers building a middle class of the type you saw, you know, on the Wonder Years and, um, you know, in, in movies. And um, I'm retelling that story uh, to put the people who the research shows me are sort of the actual heroes of that middle class story front and center. And those, those workers are women and uh, men of color, women of all races, men of color, um, basically people who had been denied opportunity in the American economy until World War II, and then both by necessity and by social revolution, uh, were granted the ability to do things they had been previously barred from doing. And when they were able to do that, they produced this wonderful surge of growth that for several decades lifted everybody. Um, We ended up with just an economy that in the post-war era really did lift the closest thing we've ever had in America to all boats. And, it, you know, that wasn't just women and it wasn't just uh, workers of color. It was, it was white guys too. And so um, mm-hmm. my argument in the book is that essentially that, that flow has broken down. We have an economy where pe- too many people are blocked from using their talents to the fullest of their ability. And, you know, I think that in particular to your coronavirus question, you know, now we see tens of millions of Americans blocked from being able to do anything with their talents. And so as we think about what do we want the economy to look like as we come out of this, I mean, knock wood, hopefully we will come out of this. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that the book provides a a bit of a roadmap. Uh, What history shows us has worked and succeeded for the middle class. Yeah, well, I'm quite excited to read. And I think a lot of it sort of gets at this point of what the American dream is, especially when you start to talk about the structural impediments that people face. Um, so do, you, do you feel like your book is relevant to, to that kind of ethos of the American dream? And, and I mean, is it dying, as people say, or is that sort of an irrelevant question to be asking? Oh, no, I think it's totally relevant. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's the heart of the book. And it's the heart of the work that I've been doing as an economics reporter for 
you know, the better part of a decade now. And as a political reporter before that, I, I just think anybody who writes about um, public policy in this country right now has been telling a middle-class story uh, for one way or the other, or an American dream story for the better part of this century. Um, it just, look, the, the, the middle class is, uh, you can define it in a whole bunch of different ways. I, I like to define it kind of aspirationally in terms of what people believe that they should be able to get if they work hard enough in America. Mm -hmm. And that's like a certain set of security goods, you might think of them. I mean, it's owning a house and having a car and being able to send your kids to college and being able to retire comfortably and go on a vacation every once in a while. And these are not like opulent things for mm -hmm. an economy. They are just basic middle class, you know, it's a security blanket, I call it in the book. And what, what I found um, is that over time, millions of Americans have sort of lost access to that that basket of goods and it's gotten harder. We've had this trade off in the country where it's easier to afford entertainment goods. We all have supercomputers in our pockets now, but it's mm -hmm. harder to afford the necessities of life like medical care and, and owning a home. And I think most Americans that, that trade off is fundamentally unsettling. The sugar high of the internet uh, on your phone is not enough to uh, compensate for not having a job that allows you to own your own home. And so, uh, you know, I think that that, that is the American dream as sort of, I think about it and define it. And I, and I think there's, there's one difficult to quantify part of that also, which is this, this dream that you should be able to grow up and be fulfilled by your work. Um, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a very oddly American, uh, a dream, but I, I mean, I, I believe it very, uh, fundamentally, and I, and I think there's just a huge amount of Americans, um, men in particular, who no longer feel that, and, and we see it in research, where where they just are, they're doing jobs that are not as rewarding as they used to be, in particular, men who used to work with their hands or with engines or, you know, mechanically inclined, um, uh, who have been, you know, shuffled by the economy into lower paying service jobs that are not as fulfilling. And I think that that is a harder to quantify, but certainly important way of thinking about the American dream experience for workers right now. So you put all of that together. And, and I do think the American dream has been in decline. I don't think it's dead, but I think, I think it's been shrinking. And I think um, certainly there is, you cannot argue with the idea that over the last 20 years, even before this latest recession hit, over the last 20 years, the American economy has not delivered anywhere close to the way that it delivered in the 50s and 60s or in the late 1990s for workers. Um, and so I think that every, every other argument that we have in Washington or around the country about the middle class kind of needs to take that as a given and recognize that, hey, people expect the economy to work in that best idealized form because we're Americans and we don't like mm -hmm. to settle. And so um, I think that's a great thing about Americans. And uh, I think that's where we are now. People, even going into this recession, there was still a lot of anxiety about the performance of the economy because people still weren't feeling that it was working for them in the way that they think the economy should. Yeah, and two points to that. I think it's important that you mention that this has been a long-term issue. It's not something that I think there's some people think about the recovery during the Obama years and, and view some of these economic, structural economic issues in very small time windows. And that's sort of not the case, as, as you just said. Um, and so... My next question, I guess, is is to what extent do you think that this kind of um, decline of the mobility amongst the middle class has led to the political environment that we find ourselves in? Because, I mean, more than past, um, in past years, there's anger and there, there's, a, it, I mean, in obviously partisanship is an issue. Um, so to, to what extent do you feel like this sort of economic burden has culminated into the political environment we find ourselves in? I mean, I think it, it has, you can't have one without the other. Um, there's a lot going on in our current political environment. And um, it's, there was for a while after the 2016 election, there was this real effort among political scientists and a lot of writers and commentators to say, 
you know, was the rise of Donald Trump a reaction to economic anxiety? Was it a, a reaction to racial um, or cultural anxiety about immigrants or non-white, uh, the progress of non-white people in the country? And what I think is you basically can't separate those things like race and, mm -hmm. and immigration and economics in this country are uh, all d deeply interwoven at times of deep economic anxiety, you see spikes in, in racial hostility. Um, th those all came together. And, uh, you know, I, I started my career in Oregon where I grew up, but, but quickly ended up in Ohio and, and was there in sort of the middle of the 2000s. And, you know, when I arrived in 2005, you could already see that there were years of manufacturing job losses that were taking mm. their toll on that, on that electorate. The only question anybody asked anywhere you went was, you know, how are you going to bring the jobs back? And, and then they got really tired of being told answers that didn't work. And, you know, Don Trump came along with a, a new set of answers and B a very carefully or you know, fortunately for him, calibrated message that spoke to both the economic and, um, you know, racial and, and, you know, immigration grievances that those voters had and, and packaged something different. Um, and so, you know, I, I, what my argument is, is that it's not a surprise that Trump came along and, and harnessed those trends. I, I'm surprised that someone like Trump didn't come along sooner. Um, particularly mm. given, and, and I think this really gets at what you were asking in the question, you know, what we saw after the Great Recession, which I wonder if we're going to have to rename that now or what, um, <laughs> but what we saw after the 2008 financial crisis um, was, a, was, you know, it, it really slammed everybody, you know, white workers, non-white workers, men and women. Um, it particularly slammed people who didn't go to college. They are far and away the most left behind workers of the economy dating back well before that recession. Um, but what it did uh, w was it hit everybody hard, but it, it had very different effects on how people thought about the future. Non like immigrants um, or, or even native born Latino and African American uh, workers were still really optimistic. Um, in like 2011 in the polling about, you know, could they get ahead with their children still have better lives? And they did, they still believed in the American dream. It was white workers without a college degree who just cratered. They didn't believe in it anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the reporting I did around that time really brought out this idea that, um, you know, white people had, many of those white, white workers had achieved a version of the American dream, you know, they were able to buy that cottage on the lake in Michigan that they could go to after their, you know, really hard week of work and at least have an escape. And it's something that they had earned and bought and felt like was theirs. And that was taken away from them. Um, whereas for statistically speaking, black and Latino America has not come anywhere close to achieving uh, to the same degree, that level of the American dream. So instead of, having a dream achieved and then taken away, they were just sort of knocked back down the ladder as they resumed their climb. And, and until Trump was elected, I, I think that that divergence in optimism was, the, was sort of the driving force of, of what happened in American politics over the course of, of a few years. Um, and then Trump was elected and white confidence rebounded because they, you know, they believed in Donald Trump. And, We'll see what happens now. The, the polling now suggests that people are much more pessimistic across the board, but that working class whites still remain more optimistic than everybody else, at least a little bit. Which is very interesting. And it's interesting you make that point, given that, you know, this is obviously one data point, but when you look at the deaths of despair and so opioid suicides and, and that sort of thing, it is, you know, largely centered around white men um yeah. which sort of kind of propels that argument that 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 was where a lot of the economic pain has been felt um and especially along class lines as well i mean as with coronavirus i i feel like this will be a similar issue i mean people who have college degrees are usually more 
able to telework from home um, and people without college degrees largely are make up a huge portion of, of the essential workers. Um, so it seems like th this coronavirus epidemic is only going to exacerbate some of the issues that you're talking about. If, if 100%. I, I, I've actually been spending the last couple of days here in my, you know, my home office, which I'm, I'm fortunate to have to be able to work from home to do mm -hmm. my job from home. Um, and I have uh, been sitting at a desk and talking to economists and looking at data about this exact question. And, you know, the polling is super clear and the economic data is super clear right now that it, it is those, you know, uh, left behind, more squeezed workers, lower income, um, more more likely to be non-white, um, but but across the board less educated workers who have been slammed by unemployment so far as the pandemic has spread, and it's you know it's guys like me who are doing okay, um, and and you know women like my wife um, who have jobs that allow you to work from home. You know, and and that is just going to get worse. It sure looks like, um, as as we you know haltingly try to to figure out a path forward in, until a vaccine is developed. And I worry a lot about that. I'm going to write a big story about it very soon here. And um, and I think that policymakers should worry a lot about it because it's it's not going to fit along neat political lines. There are just mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who are hurting for, and I just, I can't stress this enough. It was true in the last recession, but, and it is like also extremely true now. These people have done nothing wrong. Like they, it's not like they did a poor job bartending or they just weren't, you know, working hard enough on the assembly line. Uh, it's all, it's not even like they engaged in risky behaviors that exposed the United States to the virus. Like this is a, mm -hmm just an event that has happened to them, but it hurts certain people more. And the people who are um, able to, I mean, basically being able to stay at home is a luxury good now. Um, mm -hmm. And that is, and that is a, that is a, has a real potential to perpetuate the kind of inequality that you and I are talking about. Absolutely. And th that brings me to a little bit of the, the, Differing perspectives now on on the shutdown of the economy. There's this huge debate about whether the economy should be reopened soon or later. Um, so I, I kind of see it in as a dichotomy between the politicians and then the academics and economists and health professionals. And so amongst the politicians, there seems to be a divide in a whole swath of them feel like an indefinite, total, and complete shutdown for the foreseeable future is the ideal. Another portion seem to want to reopen the economy and return to normal about as soon as possible. Are there any prominent political figures right now that you feel like are doing a good job of presenting an approach that lies in between those two diverging opinions uh i th i mean i think that a wide range of governors are in particular i mean governors are the ones who actually have to make these decisions and i i have talked to several of their teams um uh, and i know some of them like uh ohio governor mike dewine i covered him and when i was there when he was a senator and running for re-election in a race he actually lost um but he has taken a very like sober and serious approach to this, just like Gavin Newsom in California. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that, you know, in those, in many of those state cases, what we're seeing is, you know, governors trying to do some trial and error. Um, but I, I think most encouraging for me is that a lot of governors are using the language of like, this isn't really a, a trade-off at all. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, there's this, there is an idea in some corners, some commentators, some, um, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to put it other than some people who, who get on TV and agitate about this, that we could just flip the lights back on and millions of people will go back to work and it would be fine and we're just making a choice to keep them unemployed. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that's true at all. I think, for, first off, we, we don't have, 
if if it was safe to be engaging in regular commerce, people would be doing it much more often. People don't feel safe. They don't, and until they feel safe from the virus, they're not going to do the things they used to do. I mean, I think even if 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 the restrictions were all lifted tomorrow, you would have some really difficult mental risk calculations that people mm-hmm. would make. Um, in the same way that that we make them now, when we just think like should I go to the grocery store for the second time this week or can I just get by with what's in the house? Um, every time you leave, you're exposing yourself to some more risk and until, and this is where sort of the person who talks to economists all the time to me gets like really, uh, you know, agitated um, <laughs> until like, every economist I talk to says, what we really need is a lot more testing, just a lot more testing. If we knew mm-hmm. where the virus was with much greater certainty, people could have more confidence in engaging in risky behaviors. It's sort of like saying um, uh, you're probably willing to pay more um, for, you know, a box of electronics. If you know what's actually in the box or have some reasonable idea, then if I'm just like, Hey, box of electronics pay $300. I mean, um, your risk of being ripped off there seems high. Um, And if it's like also could possibly be a box of pythons, then, you know, you're almost definitely not going to pay me anything for it. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that, that that is the the real question here. Um, there will be restrictions. The restrictions are almost certainly going to come off uh, faster in some places than others. People are going to have different responses to it. My guess is that we're going to see some flare-ups in infection rates depending on you know how fast the testing gets deployed and that that will in turn affect economic activity. But what every you know, um, serious economist who's modeled this that I've talked to stresses is there's a really high possibility that we don't, there's nothing we can do to get the economy back to anything close to normal until people feel safe again. And that, you know, that is a conversation that I hear, um, you know, governors talking a lot about uh, that is heartening to me because it sort of understands the realities of the economy. Well, I I think that's a very curious point. I I was reading some of of your earlier reporting from this week talking just it sort of displayed how widespread um, the general feeling of unease across America is. Um, you had done some reporting showing that unemployment claims have risen across the country regardless of the hot spots and that those gaps where coronavirus is hitting harder unemployment, the, the gaps between places where it's not and it is are starting to close. Um, so it seems clear that it's a, both a matter of policy, but largely a matter of public sentiment and people's willingness to to feel safe about leaving. Um, so, I mean, I think that's a great point. And so given that you do talk to a lot of economists, do you see, do you think they see the problem in the appropriate appropriate response in a similar way? I mean, I, I, I think economists, epidemiologists, uh, the, the benefit they have is dealing in, you know, worlds of models so often. Um, the limitation they have is, is that often they are not dealing in the worlds of politics. Um, but in this case, if you look at what polling shows us, you know, the economists and the epidemiologists who are telling us, these restrictions, you know, restrictions on economic activity are what's needed to keep a lot of people from dying, a lot more people from dying. Like the polling shows Americans believe that. Um, and and I, I think it's an open question how long they will continue to believe that, especially if like the death rates fall and, and then people sort of feel like, well, there's fewer death rates, you know, there's fewer deaths now, so it's maybe safe to go back outside. Um, and then that's where I think you risk, uh, you know, flare-ups of the virus again. Um, but, you know, I, I think that the benefit that the economists have here is that they are laser focused on, okay, what, what do we not know? And this like testing rate is really just a, incredibly important. And so, you know, when I talk to them and when I talk to politicians and when I talk to, you know, people I know who I respect who work in the health field, like they, there's a pretty robust agreement that testing would be, if you wanted to just like dial up one thing right now, testing is the way to do it to get get back to work. Yeah, because without it, I mean, 
I've read quite a few academic papers on on this issue and you know all of the models we're building are are based off of assumptions and without testing a lot of these assumptions if not most of them are very loose assumptions that we're not very sure of which makes it really hard to predict uh, what's going to happen in the future but so i mean and you do talk to quite a number of economists and i'm sure from both sides of the aisle um, do you feel like they have the economists in general have conformed to their sort of historical policy platforms or any way or has this pandemic sort of unified uh, most of, of the field i don't know if it's unified most of the field it's unified a lot of the field in ways that are interesting to me i i, I would say and it's important to note that there have been there's a particular strain of economists, um, which tends to be a more libertarian, either economist, and in some cases, not even economists, sort of law professors uh, who have platforms at think tanks, who have argued that this is all just a huge overreaction, that um, the right way to do this is sort of a much more free market way, that you know, let people make decisions for themselves, but don't tell businesses they have to close. Um, you know, Sweden is basically trying that. And for a while, those people were touting the success of Sweden. And right now, the death rates in Sweden are significantly higher than in the United States. Um, and I think uh, the, other, the other thing that that group has done, I mean, not all of them, so some people in that group early on pushed the idea that everyone was overreacting about the like, threat the virus posed. And I think it is very clear that they were wrong on that. Um, and I, they have not been. Many of the experts who were wrong about that, who made very big, bold predictions, have not really apologized for it. So uh, I, I think it's important to sort of note that outlier group um, uh, inside the field. I think otherwise, it's been really interesting to me the degree to which there has been, I mean, obviously big bands of of. of difference um, in, in terms of emphasis and in terms of, in particular, you know, some trade-offs, how, how far should restrictions go, you know, when should they come back, you know, what, how much is too much. But there has been widespread agreement among economists on, on testing. Um, there has been a lot of agreement among economists, particularly in Washington, on the need for the federal government to step in and help like, small businesses, for example. Um, to weather this storm. Uh, again, if you own a restaurant in, you know, in Knoxville, you are, it's not your fault that no one's showing up right now. You didn't do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and so there is this sense that the government should, should help. Um, there has been, I think, an interesting and important debate over um, how the government should best help workers. Um, that You have seen a sort of more of a traditional split with uh, many more conservative economists um, opposing what Congress and the president passed last month, which uh, makes unemployment benefits more generous. I mean, they're worried that that will make it harder to get workers back on the job once, once activity starts to resume. Um, but those are all sort of healthy debates within the realm of normal economic policymaking. And I think what has been um, very interesting to me to see is that you have you know, compare it again to the last recession, there has not been a loud outcry from, for example, economists worried that all of these moves by the Federal Reserve are going to spur more inflation. They're just, whether it's because we've learned the lesson that inflation didn't come last time and that the Fed pumped a bunch of liquidity into the financial system and, and other things, or not, um, there just seems to be less, there's still criticism, obviously, but economists seem more, um, in sort of in, in lockstep on the idea that the Fed is doing what's necessary to keep the economy functioning and that the federal government is, is doing some uh, regrettable but necessary borrowing to, to do that also. Well, and that kind of gets at the federal government's role in this response. Um, oddly, a lot of the public focus has been on sort of setting guidelines. It's not been focused on, on the legislation um, and the relief package, at least cable news-wise, um, which doesn't always pre present a great picture. Um, but, you know, the federal government put out new guidelines yesterday that, that 
seemed to provide a little bit of detail about moving forward. And, you know, obviously the administration, aside from the stimulus package, has also played a role in the, the supply chain piece. So providing PPE, ventilators, constructing temporary hospitals. But beyond that, has the the Trump administration really played a huge role in this response? Or has it really been a lot of noise and mostly delegated to the states? Uh, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't characterize the administration as, as not playing an important role here. I mean, the administration has done a lot um, I, I, and they have, um, you know, the president has tried to assert some federal authority, you know, authority that it does not appear to be there. Const- I mean, constitutionally, um, you know, constitutional law scholars do not think the president has the ability to order states uh, out of lockdown. That, that just well, seems to total be, power. Know. Yeah, right. He does not. But but obviously, you know, the 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 federal government has been setting guidelines. The federal government has been you know doing all sorts of work um, at the CDC. Uh, it, it would be wrong to say that this has been just a state by state thing. I think that the most consequential decisions about shutting down economic activity have come from governors. But I also would say that the, the truly most consequential decisions have just come from individuals who, and, and from, and from companies that have chosen to, you know, send people home or to shut down or, or to, to stay home, um, take their kids out of school. I mean, I think um, my guess is that if, if you had major city school systems right now that were still operating as normal, you'd have a lot of parents who were not sending their kids to school. Um, and, and that's, you know, those are consumer decisions in the economy based on information. So I, I think that, that that is sort of the um, actor who we talk the least about, but who is most consequential is just the power of individuals to decide what they're gonna do. And again, we've seen backlash to it, the protests in Michigan this week and elsewhere, people who, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's in our polling, it's, you know, probably around like 30%, I believe, uh, of Americans who think that these restrictions have gone too far um, and would like them to be relaxed. But that's a vast majority of Americans who are, for the time being at least, bought into the idea that this is the best way to minimize, you know, loss of life. And what, what is really um, uh, striking to me when you look at all the different surveys I've looked at is that the, there are the groups of people who are most economically at risk from this, like the ones who have lost their jobs are also some of, you know, among the people who are most in favor of the efforts to Mm. stop the spread of the virus. And that's so particularly striking, striking with young people. Um, They obviously they're at risk of contracting the virus and it, and it can hurt them and, and we've seen a few cases where it's been fatal, um, but they are at far less risk than their parents or, or grandparents. But they, but it's, but it's young people who are really the ones, you know, and early on in this crisis were the ones saying, no, we need, we need to stop the spread of this. And I think um, that's always heartening to me to see young people take a lot of flack for being selfish. I, I never really think that, that is true or warranted. And um, and in particular. I think that this crisis has shown us that they are the ones who are, are sacrificing their own current and future economic well-being in order to protect people they love from, from getting this, this potentially fatal virus. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting juxtaposition with the narrative that emerged early on in March. We saw around mid-March a, a lot of young people still crowding the beaches in Miami, um, but as you have mentioned, the, you know, the survey data has, has sort of maybe proven that as more of an anecdotal point and not what young people as a whole are feeling. Um, yeah, I think the spring break pictures basically uh, were, I mean, that's bad behavior, right? <laughs> I don't think anybody would defend that behavior now. Uh, I also think that it just is like not the vast majority of young people. That's not how they responded to this. Now let's also be, be fair to young people here and, and do something I like to do, which is, you know, beat up on public officials. But like a lot of public officials were telling them it was okay, you know, mm-hmm. to, to go out on St. Patrick's Day or, you know, to drink in the bars and, and to travel. And uh, I don't know, we, we, tell, we tell young people they should respect authority. And when authorities are misleading you, 
uh, it's hard to blame them. So I do think it was bad behavior, poor decision-making. Um, I have a young teenager and if he had wanted to like do something like that with his, his friend, well, he was supposed to go on a trip with his school orchestra and, you know, he really wanted to go. The trip obviously ended up being canceled, but, you know, I told him before it was canceled that he wasn't going to get to go and he understood. But if he had like defied me and gone anyway, I would have been pretty, pretty upset. And I think that um, it's a real testament to most young people that, that that is not how they were thinking about it. Yeah. And with all fairness, I think a lot of this happened very quickly. I mean, I started working on some policy briefs for work um, regarding coronavirus a, a week or so before the NBA canceled their season. Tom Hanks announced he had coronavirus, which really seemed to be I mean, we knew what was coming in the data. Um, academically speaking, we, we sort of saw what was coming, but the, the cultural piece of it where people started to realize that this was a pandemic and something that we had to take seriously happened relatively quickly, um, which to me seems, and the timing of, of spring break with in March, it just seemed like sort of the worst case scenario, um, especially with a bunch of college students who, who don't listen to the news very often. Um, so, you know, they give them, give them a break to, to some degree. So to move on a little bit in, in another piece of, of the federal government response, which is perhaps the most important has been um, the relief package. And in recent days, we've sort of learned that the paycheck protection program and loan program has sort of reached its cap. Um, and, you know, early on, economists sort of warned that the funding that was allotted here was not enough. Um, I think there was also a lot of criticism of how it was going to work in the process. Um, and so now Republicans seem to want a narrow piece of legislation to just add a little bit more money and keep the program going. Um, yet Democrats have quite a few objections. So what are those objections? And, and do you think those concerns are largely borne out in the data thus far? Well, I think it's important to start by recognizing that the federal government is just not, and particularly this small business administration, are just not set up to do what lawmakers have tried to do over the last month which is mm -hmm. just quickly distribute bridge loans to what they claim was every small business that needs it to keep people on their payrolls. That, that is crazy, right? Like that is, that is a really, really hard thing to do. And, um, and so it's, it has not, the rollout has not gone smoothly in large part because you're trying to force, you know, an enormous amount of toothpaste through a very small tube. Um, mm. but the, but, but it's also true that before the law creating the small business, um, assistance was passed, a lot of experts were warning everybody that that was the case. There were different, uh, proposals that might've allocated the money differently. There were absolutely, I mean, every advocate I talked to economist or lobbyist, um, of, of any kind of effort to help small business was saying at least a trillion dollars, at least a trillion dollars, at least a trillion dollars. And neither the Republicans nor the Democrats in Congress um, insisted on that. Nobody made that a red line. So they ended up with 350 billion and it ran out faster than they thought. Um, so that's left us here now. So we've got a program that is, that is the data show us is probably not getting money to the types of firms that need it most, um, in particular, like hospitality, restaurant, hotel type mm -hmm. firms. Um, and it does not appear to be targeting the states where the outbreak is worse, um, but, uh, but does, does appear to be getting money to um, companies that have existing relationships with banks, which is understandable because banks are the ones handing out the loans. Um, so construction companies, for example, are probably overrepresented in how much, how much loan money they have received. Uh, all of that adds up to now the situation where all of these things are true. The program needs more money. The program probably, uh, I mean, certainly from in the eyes of a lot of, of advocates and economists needs major reforms for how that money is allocated. 
Um, and by the way, other places need money too, including state and local governments and hospitals. So what Republicans are proposing is, look, let's just allocate some more money first and then, which by the way, Congress is not in session is the other really mm-hmm. important thing to say here. Like no one's actually in Washington other than a few leaders. And, and so they're trying to do all of this by, by unanimous voice, which is really hard in even the most trying of times like we are now. So, so Republicans just want to, let's, let's, let's refill this, uh, this fund and then we'll worry about the reforms later. Democrats are basically saying, nope, we, the, the refill has to come with some reforms uh, and with some other money for some other things. Let's make a deal. Uh, and they're not making a deal. I, I, reporters get a, a lot of trouble for, for saying both sides bear blame here, but both sides bear blame here. Um, it, the, the program, if, you, if what you really want to do is sustain small business through a very difficult time, you should not allow a program to run out of money, full stop. And the Democrats have done mm-hmm. that here. But it, you also shouldn't have set up a program that was going to run out of money so fast, which they knew it would. And for that, all, everybody bears blame. Um, mm-hmm. So I, 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 I think that um, my, my Twitter mentions are just full of people and uh, robots arguing um, about uh, uh, who bears the most blame here. But like, the blame game is actually only distracting from the fact that a whole bunch of businesses right now don't have the money they need and are at the risk of just going bankrupt or folding. And that, yeah. that is the real, I mean, that, that is where the focus should be. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, I think you make a, a good point with, you know, because the loans are allocated on a first come first serve basis and, and they, it's easier to get them if you have a previous relationship with a bank and, and your ability to navigate that process um, inherently sort of lends itself easier to, to get funds for, for the people who probably don't need them as much as some others, which is interesting that you mention that construction uh, represents a huge portion of that because I know in Tennessee, construction companies are considered essential. And I mean, I guess at least anecdotally, um, I haven't really heard much about construction companies sort of slowing operations. So do do you know if that's centered in places where the outbreak has been worse or more just across the board? So we have started to, um, so we don't know the state by state breakdown of the, um, you know, of the, of, the industry gains from we know state by state breakdown of how of who of, of which states have gotten money from the program we know industry breakdown we don't know industry by state so i can't say like oh yeah it's just a bunch of construction companies in florida or whatever um i can tell you that we are starting to see a lot more um uh construction layoffs across the country like unemployment mm-hmm. claims from construction uh it's still overrepresented as a share of unemployment claims uh, in the in the money from the program, but while it's true that a lot of construction workers are essential, it's also true that a lot of them are starting to lose their jobs. Uh, so, and so so clearly, the structure has not really lent itself to prioritizing, especially the states that are being hardest hit by this, which which seems to be one of the downfalls of the package. But apart from the the small business loan program. Was there anything else cons- meaningfully considered but not included in, in the final deal that was aimed at, at aiding small businesses? Um, you know, there were a lot of things kicked around, uh, but, but the, the package for small business did sort of firm up fairly early in the process. I, 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 I have, I've heard a lot of ideas for what could be in the next package to help small business, but I, nothing that I can report yet with certainty is going to be in there. So I I, I probably shouldn't get into it. Um, I mean, I would say though, that it is the number one thing that, uh, that lobbyists and lawmakers seem focused on right now, um, in part because that money has run out, whereas like unemployment benefits go for four months. Um, I think there's, I mean, there's also, by the way, consternation among particularly, uh, some Democrats that the, uh, direct payments to individuals are not recurring. It's just a one-time deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, overall anxiety, the highest levels of anxiety right now are about this particular program that's been created for small business. And then there are 
lots of things that groups and people are starting to call for to additionally help them, but uh, I don't think they're anywhere close to, you know, on the horizon yet. Yeah. And so to that point about the individual payments, I think that's a very neat political point moving forward. Um, I, I'm curious whether this will, the payments will push Americans to the left and whether this will be sort of the dawn of a universe, universal basic income situation. I mean, it seems like it will be really hard for Republicans or Democrats to wean Americans off this sort of program that has given them $1,200 checks in their bank account. I mean, do you think that there, what kind of political implications are there? Well, I don't, I would be less uh, uh, certain that there would be a big, I mean, there's obviously been a big uh, growing movement behind universal basic income. We, you know, we've seen, you know, Andrew Yang got some real uh, traction in the presidential race, uh, uh, pushing basically that as his dominant policy idea. But I, I don't think the existence of this one check is likely to do that. Now, if, if we get into a situation where Americans can't work for six or nine or 12 months, you know, huge swaths of Americans and the government is bridging that largely by just sending direct support to everybody. Then I think there's, um, there's more of a possible movement for it. I, I, um, but I don't, I don't know that this start of this program is, is, is in and of itself enough to add a lot of fire to it. What I will say is once we get out of this crisis, whenever we do, there's going to be, a big national debate about, okay, how do we rethink our social safety net? And there's going to be a lot of talk about unemployment insurance. There's going to be a lot of talk about healthcare and sort of its attachment to people's jobs. There's going to be a lot of talk about, you know, is there some baseline level of support we should be providing people so that in the, you know, case something like this happens again, um, it's just, it just kicks in right away. I don't know if that leads to a universal basic income. Um, I, I can see a lot of political impediments to it. Uh, there are just a lot of Americans who remain um, uncomfortable with the idea of, of just sending what, what will certainly be uh, called by opponents as welfare payments. Um, mm-hmm. on, the flip, on the flip side, though, um, I think it's going to be a time when a lot of uh, ideas are rethought. And, and um, it, certainly the polling shows there's an appetite for UBI in the country. And so that'll be in the mix. I, I, I don't, I don't try to be predictive. And, and in the book, I try really hard not to be um, even that, that prescriptive about what exact policies we need to kind of rebuild the American worker. But I do think we're going to need to have that conversation. And it, it's just been let, you know, made very, very clear that, that we, don't, we don't have those right now. No, and that's sort of my overarching point there is that, you know, I think it has to some degree, you know, there's been this argument in the past that we can't afford these big social programs. Um, And then we saw, you know, early on Mitt Romney um, and Republicans coming out in support of these kind of things. And and the political implications of that are, are, it's a curious debate to me whether that will lead to an expanded safety net just in general. But, you know, another sort of sub policy piece of the coronavirus that I feel like is getting underlooked at the moment is that with schools being shut down for the rest of the year in many places across America, and this is very relevant to your book and sort of the inequality concerns that we're having is that presumably that will lead to some massive inequalities in the experience in public schools this year and also in the next. I mean, the kids who are already behind will whenever they do return to school will be even further behind um and you know what are the implications of that i mean we're we're already the united states is already sort of behind with education and this seems to be a a massive setback as well um so I, i think this is one of the really really horrible realities of this crisis and and 
and some other dilemmas that the American economy has, has faced uh, which, which in recent years uh, and, and sort of existential threats moving forward, which is there are a lot of possible scenarios here. And in many of them, if not all of them, you know, poor and disadvantaged young people in particular lose out no matter what you do. So school is a great example. Um, right now, uh, having school shut down absolutely disadvantages poor kids, full stop. They are, mm-hmm. they, we, we know from research that they are the ones who you know, miss out over the summer. Um, they are the ones who are not getting that you know, um, extra in- enrichment um, that higher income kids are getting at home right now, uh, whether it's because their parents can't afford to you know, buy them educational materials or, or a lot of other things. Like they, not having school, I mean, even the simple um, question of ac- who has access to online learning it, it tilts against poor children. And, and that you know, sets them up for you know, a, a cascade of consequences later in life. Um, but if you reopen school right now, and um, it, it would again be, there would be an inequality of outcome. There would be an inequality of who actually sent their kids back to school in the midst of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. There would be um, the plans that I have seen that, um, that call for a quick reopening of schools also call for segregating out uh, any kids who live with individuals who are at high risk of dying from the virus. So that would be like grandparents. And there again, you, you are disadvantaging multi-generational families in the same house who tend to be lower income and non-white. And either way you slice it, there is a worse outcome for the poor and for children who are growing up with less opportunity. And uh, that is, that is a very, very difficult policy question, which uh, nobody is really confronting right now. And it's certainly not at the forefront of our uh, national conversation. But when you think about the long-term effects of this crisis on the American middle class, it's absolutely a huge part of it. It's, it's a huge mm-hmm. part of it um, because we know that there is a certain, um, you know, there's just dramatic difference in, in opportunity uh, by communities in this country. And that um, those inequality, inequality leads to um, lower opportunities over time. And I, I just, it, it is frustrating and sad and, um, one of the more difficult things to ponder in all this because we don't have a good answer for how to fix it right now. Mm-hmm. And it, just a couple more questions before we start to wrap up, but you know, a lot of the, in recent years, especially a lot of the policy conversation seems to be driven by what has, what is being talked about in the media. Um, that's not, true all of the time um, but it is largely true in a lot of instances and there's been lots of criticism about how the media has covered the coronavirus where it's placed its focus Um, obviously there's a range of media outlets but broadly speaking do you think the criticism of the media's sort of coverage of coronavirus is warranted um Let's see. Uh, first off, I, I think that the media is a really, really tricky word to use. It's sort of like saying mm-hmm. the, the humans. Um, yeah. uh, but, uh, you know, if, if we take it to mean sort of like the, the mainstream media, um, I, I, I actually think that I have been, I'm going to start with what I've been incredibly impressed by. Uh, I've been incredibly impressed by in particular local media in this country. Um, mm-hmm. which, which are basically like reporting from a sinking platform in a lava pit right now. Um, this crisis is, is eating local media alive. Local news reporters are being laid off. They're having their hours cut. Their advertising revenues have completely dried up. And yet they are the ones telling some of the most important stories about life and death and, and commerce in the midst of this pandemic. And I have been just blown away and and if i could put one plug in on this podcast i would say please subscribe to a local media outlet around mm-hmm. you. Um, it, it really matters and um and and they have been incredibly helpful um so i'll say that i also think that you know big time the big time national players 
in this have thrown huge amounts of resources at it. Um, I am very proud to work at the times where, where our health team coverage and our econ team coverage and our political coverage have been just wall to wall on the virus for quite some time now. Our foreign mm-hmm. coverage led us into this. Um, you know, but, but even, even like with the Post where I used to work or the Wall Street Journal, which I've long admired, like they have thrown enormous resources and I've been very, uh, just as a reader of those places, very impressed. Uh, I, uh, I, I don't, I don't consume a lot of cable news right now in this crisis, to be super honest. Probably not um, a bad thing. <laughs> uh, I, I do sometimes. I mean, I, um, I, I go on some shows sometimes and I, and I watch some shows sometimes, but in, in general, uh, I, I feel like in particular long arguments about the politics of the virus just tend to make it harder to do my job trying to focus on the policy. So I've, I've been avoiding that. And then I will say, I will say that there have been, some um some outlets and uh that that early on in the crisis really did try to run with the sort of magical thinking this isn't as bad as you think contrarianism and i think that's irresponsible and it has been irresponsible and um i'm i've been critical about it and continue to be i i don't uh i don't think for whatever reason that you're motivated to do it i don't think publishing a lot of stories that say this is not nearly that bad. You shouldn't be scared of it. I mean, I, 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 publishing or airing those stories, I think they've had a huge effect. We can see it. You know, there's there is that segment of the country. Mm-hmm. I I know those people. I know people who tell me that this is not a big deal. It's not a real threat, and I I, I worry that that is elevating a death rate um, uh, that that should not have been. So. That, that is my yeah. media pundit for you. Yeah, and which is the frustrating part, particularly with cable news and, and certain outlets that, you know, cable news gets boxed in with news and media in general. Um, and, you know, there's, there's clearly some, some <laughs> bias and, and political leanings in a, in a lot of cable news shows. And that has, you know, I mean, it's a broader conversation, but that's sort of pervaded uh, down to the actual reporting and, and things that are a lot, you know, in substance, very different than cable news. Um, and so I guess, you know, at the beginning of this crisis, if you weren't consuming news in real time, and like you mentioned, a lot of outlets, including the Times, have just poured their resources into covering this crisis, and, and we should all be thankful for that. But if you weren't consuming it in real time, you were behind. Everything has changed so quickly, um, and the information flow seems a bit more manageable now. And so in general, has the pace of breaking news actually slowed or do you think that the American people and people watching the news have just worn themselves out hearing about coronavirus? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I I certainly am worn out. (laughs) Um, And I think every reporter covering this is, I'm not, uh, I'm not special that way. I think this has been, um, just an incredibly uh, fast moving, you know, sprawling, developing crisis to cover. And, and let me, and let me just say very, very bluntly, I have an easy job in this. I mean, my colleagues who are reporting from inside hospitals, who are talking to medical professionals, uh, who are putting themselves at risk of contracting the virus uh, are, you know, my counterparts doing that are doing much much more stressful and difficult work. And of course the medical professionals who are on the front lines are doing the most difficult work. And um, so I don't want to, I don't hesitate to even complain that it's tiring, of, mm-hmm. you know, sitting here from my, from my home doing this. But I do think, you know, from a psychological perspective, I mean, a lot of us have had very few days off. Um, I'm sure a lot of, uh, a lot of my competitors are the same way. And there's, there's not really an end in sight. And so um, I mean, not to try to bring this back around to the beginning of, of our conversation, but I'm going to, I mean, I think there is a, at some point there's a certain fatigue sets in where um, you just feel like you're running in place and running in place and running in place and you're waiting for things to improve. And when they don't, you, 
it can be very easy for despair to start to creep in. I just saw some polling this morning about the, the degree of depression symptoms that are rising in, in Americans mm-hmm. across the country. And, and I, I think that we are seeing right now a very fast motion version of what a lot of, you know, formerly middle-class Americans have experienced over the last several decades, that they they felt like they were working and working and working and they just kept sliding back and they were kept waiting for that restoration of an economy that worked for them and that helped them get ahead, that up escalator to start again. And it just really hasn't. And so then something like this comes along and you're like, oh, well, I've gone from running in place against the escalator to now just being in free fall down. Um, it, it is, I, I just think, completely demoralizing. And it explains a lot of what we've seen in our politics and a lot of what we've seen in our country. And I worry about it. But I, I do think there's, you know, once we're through this crisis, I think there are, there's a way through this crisis. Uh, I think there's a way back to a better economy. I, I, I'm, and I'm trying to sort of um, hold on to optimism, uh, just like I think you know, most working Americans do every day. It's just, you know, as you know, it, it can be really hard to do in the face of uh, a really difficult circumstance. Absolutely. And, and to sort of bring us home on, on this conversation, talk a little bit about the 2020 election. I mean, to what extent do you feel like this will impact the 2020 election? I, I, and then, I mean, one situation that's sort of unnerving for me is, you know, I was an early critic of, of proceeding with the primaries in, in Florida and Illinois and certainly in Wisconsin, just given that I, it, I, I would love to see the data now, but it just seems like that would discourage voting disproportionately amongst who's at risk and, and demographic lines. Um, and it's not wholly implausible that that will be the case in 2020 and it's not implausible to say that a state will need to have some type of stay-at-home order on election day and so the the two-part question to that is one how does the middle class how is the middle class affected by the coronavirus when it comes to the 2020 election which you know is a big question and then two um, how do you deal with that uncertainty of we really i mean there could be a reemergence of the virus in the fall similar to 1918 and it could you know unfairly suppress voters in the middle class who are working or working in a hospital or at a higher risk so two part question there um, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know the answer is the sad answer. I, I think, you know, I'm from Oregon. We vote from, um, you know, we vote by mail. Everybody votes by mail. It works just fine. Um, but I also don't think that we're going to have that across the country. Um, you know, uh, where I vote in Virginia now where I live, uh, we don't vote by mail. Um, I you can request an absentee ballot, but, um, but I have, you know, as recently as, uh, as this year been, um, you know, been to a polling place. So what happens if, if there's an election at a time when people are scared to go to the polls or when particular people are at risk? Um, I mean, I certainly think that that is going to be just a critical part of the discussion here. I certainly, certainly, certainly don't think that we should postpone elections or call off democracy because of a, mm-hmm. of a pandemic. But I, I mean, I, I, I just think in across this crisis, whether it's the reopening of economic activity or the thinking about voting or whatever, we should strive to avoid forcing people to choose between exercising a fundamental right and being, being safe. Um, mm-hmm. Whether that's, you know, their right and ability to, uh, to provide for their families or their right and ability to vote. Um, I think we should be really careful about forcing people into those really horrible um, dilemmas of, of having to choose one over the other. So, uh, I, I do I do worry about it, and I don't know how it's going to be resolved, but I, I think it's probably going to consume a lot of our summer uh, de- mm-hmm. debating and talking about it. Well, you're doing important work, and that will do it for this episode of As It Stands with Hanson Sale. And don't forget, Jim has a new book coming out about inequality in America. Again, that's titled The Riches of This Land, The Untold True Story of America's Middle Class, scheduled to be released this coming August. I also I encourage you to pick up a copy, and I also encourage you to follow Jim's reporting via the New York Times or follow him on Twitter at Jim Tankersley. Thank you for joining me today, Jim. It was a pleasure to have you. Hanson, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Hey, you. 
Thank you for tuning in to As It Stands. As It Stands is brought to you by The Daily Beacon, the editorial independent student newspaper at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and your host, me, Hanson Sale. A special thanks to Evan Newell, Austin Orr, the Howard H. Baker Center for Public Policy, and the Coronavirus-19 Outbreak Response Experts Team at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. For up-to-date information about COVID-19 and its impact on Tennessee, visit core19.utk.edu. I hope you enjoy the show. Remember to read widely, practice social distancing, and join me for the next episode of As It Stands. I hope you have a great week and see you then.